Hi there, I'm Jonathan Platt, and this is Direct Line, the absolute best podcast in the Baylor family. This week, we're bringing you an especially unique episode. This episode accompanies a new digital magazine out from the Baylor Line Foundation today. You can get it at baylorline.com slash doolin. This week's episode is, it's around a couple of questions. How do you mourn the loss of someone as special to you as a son? How do you face and work through the incomprehensible pain? How can you cope when you feel not only loss, but frustration, confusion, and heartache as you struggle through the grieving process? Faced with this unimaginable loss, you can't help but wonder, what if you never find a genuine outlet, a proper way to find peace? In this episode, I'm discussing how one man took on the tough, awful, world-shattering pain of losing his son, how we can feel understood in a year filled with tragedy and pain, and how our guest, Robert Darden, is able to find, research, and deliver such captivating narratives as this one around Al Doolin and the loss of his son, Mike. Robert Darden is the professor of journalism, public relations, and new media at Baylor. He founded the Baylor Black Gospel Restoration Project and has also authored over two dozen books, including Nothing But Love in God's Water, Volumes 1 and 2, and People Get Ready, A New History of Black Gospel Music. Darden's writing has appeared in publications from the New York Times to the Oxford American. He lives in Waco with his wonderful wife, Dr. Mary Landon Darden. In this episode, you'll hear Bob and I discuss a couple of things. Most importantly, it's who Al Doolin is and why his tribute to his fallen son, Michael, was and continues to be so influential. How Doolin's words are able to elicit such strong emotional reactions from a wide audience. What it was like for Bob to research such significant Baylor alums such as Doolin and his son. How Doolin's writing continues to be relevant for so many members of the Baylor family as they face the loss of loved ones due to the COVID-19 pandemic, and also how Bob writes truly captivating narratives and why he thinks that writing is a heavenly calling. Bob is, and if you know anything about me, you already know this, Bob is truly one of my favorite people on this earth. The first time that I read this story uh, about Mike Doolin, I was truly in tears by the end of it. Um, That's not um, an anomaly Most things that Bob writes have that emotionally evocative piece to them, a truly a heavenly calling. Others who have read this story have said the same thing. It moved something in my soul. I'm not going to put this off any longer. So here's my interview with Bob Darden. Hey, Bob. Welcome to the Direct Line Podcast. Delighted to be here, John. How are you? I am as COVIDly possible as humanly. No, I'm as humanly COVID as possible. I'm still standing. <laughs> well, you've got your drum set behind you. Have you let out any of your uh, quarantined up aggression out on it? No, Mary's office is uh, around the corner. So she works from the home as well. Did she confiscate your drumsticks because you were playing on it or just it's an agreement? No, it's a. Uh, Drummers are self-conscious anyway, and it's not really something you can practice with any kind of melody. So it's been sitting there 
eager for after midnight to get back together again. So when you're not playing the drums, what's your day job? Well, the semester of fall 2020, I have received very graciously from the Baylor University a research leave to work on my latest book, which is a history, both musically and theologically, of the late and legendary gospel singer Andre Crouch, one of the few gospel artists to have his songs, both in black and white hymn books, as well as being one of the most beloved and best-selling gospel artists of all time. He's really the, the center point between traditional gospel and contemporary. And if they ever build a Mount Rushmore for gospel artists, he'll have one of the four faces on it. And yet there has never been a book, any kind of serious in-depth analysis of the music and ministry of Crouch since his original little uh, quote autobiography wrote back in 1974. Wow. Well, as always, it sounds like you're doing very, very important work. Um, and the reason that I wanted to have you on the podcast was because of another piece of very, very important work that you have done. Uh, it's an article on somebody that many of us don't know. But the few of us who do have a very deep and emotional reaction to hearing the name. So could you tell us a little bit about this person and about the article that you've written? And then we can go into talking about the pieces of the article that I think speak the loudest and the pieces of the article that you think are the most important. And then, of course, uh, the pieces that... Uh, you know, I'm a journalist too. You, you spend an hour and a half with someone, you get to use about four minutes of it. Maybe we could talk about some of those extra minutes that are left over. I have been a fan of the novels of Al Doolin, the great Texas writer since probably my Baylor days when David McCam introduced him to me, saying, here's a Baylor boy you should know. And I have read his books, most of which are set in Texas, which were made into major motion pictures and were bestsellers through into the early mid-70s. But I didn't know much about him as a person. I did know that he had served and had seen a lot of rough action in Iwo Jima and some of the other sites in the South Pacific. And somewhere along the way, I had heard that he had a son and that his son had also served, and that he had died in Vietnam. And probably decades later, I heard that on the occasion of his death, that Al had written an extraordinary tribute that many people still read every day on Memorial Day, Veterans Day, and that it's touch the fabric and fiber of multiple generations. But in the days before the internet, there was really no way I could put my hands on it. I didn't know the name of it. And finally, just a few years ago, David McCam once again said, you know, you really need to track down Al Doolin's tribute to his fallen son. And now by then it was much easier. So I found it been reprinted widely, even in Reader's Digest, even in the Congressional Record, and pulled up a copy. 
and sat down and read it through in one sitting. And as father of a son, I was struck by the just transparent, raw, eloquent, naked pain in the writing. And by the end, like generations of fathers and mothers before me, I was just moved to tears. And I called my wife, Mary Ann, and read her some of the passages, and she read the whole thing, and then we were in tears together. And I knew that while this piece had been widely shared in some areas, it perhaps wasn't as widely known by Baylor people, because the son was also attended Baylor and was a graduate. And so I reached out to John, I think in the meantime, Dave McCam would talk to you as well, so this might be a good story. So the- Yes, uh, McCam came into the line offices, and in the before we did a renovation, there was a wall of books from, I mean, seriously, like every single book that any person even related to Baylor had ever written, I think. Um, there were there are a couple of uh, them up there with the name Darden on the spine, maybe one or two. Um, but he, I mean, almost almost like he had been there and almost like he knew where he was going. He walked straight to a specific area of the bookshelf. He thumbed through three or four and he pulled out uh, a, uh, a white cover um, and it had a, a, a pistol on it. And he said... Uh, you, uh, you need to write an article about this guy's son. And I said, okay, who is he? And, and he said uh, he was one of the first Baylor kids to die in, in Vietnam. And, uh, and his dad, um, he processed it in every way that he could. And he kind of shoved the book towards me. And he said this was one of the ways that he processed it. And so, I mean, probably less than an hour later, I was on the phone with you going, what is this? What's he talking about? Let's, let's start looking into this. And I had no idea that you had been receiving these drops and trickles over the past few decades from both McCam and just your own curiosity and, and others. So uh, it, I, I remember talking to you that I think there was more excitement in your voice than there was when you pitched the Abner McCall G-Man story to me, I mean, there was just this, not even energy, but this um, just almost like you were receiving a calling, like something was finally clicking with you that it was time to do this. Some, some stories have a, a niche in the universe that they're called to fill. And I, I loved working on the, the G-Man story and many, many stories for the line through the years. Which is, but um, the state of affairs in this country and elsewhere right now just seemed like this story called out in a way that I hadn't felt in a long time. The, the only other story that, having, having been close with you for about eight years now, the only story that I really remember this coming close to was 
uh, when you worked on the Wilson Fielder piece. I remember that just became almost all encapsulating for you. There was there was soul, mind, um, and physical toil in that. I think the moment I knew I had to do that story was in the Wilson Fielder story it was in Washington D.C. We had gone for the opening of the National Museum of African American History and Culture. But as we waited, I finally got to go with Stephen Patty Orr, the former dean of libraries, to the museum. And they have a massive um, wall the size of a motion picture screen where they show videos. And one of the videos they showed was of the fall of the Twin Towers in New York City. And the footage, which I'd never seen before, shows grief-stricken, bloody people streaming away from the towers. And then it shows the first responders streaming for it. But right behind the first responders were the reporters of a half a dozen news organizations, some who don't come back. And the Wilson Fielder story struck me in a way because when half a nation was fleeing South Korea as the North Korean army had swept down, and the photos I remember of it are of the refugee lines, the only people streaming towards certain death are the U.S. military and the foreign war correspondents. And I believe 17 reporters died in covering the Korean conflict. And among the very first was Wilson Fielder. So I already had that as an old journalist who's seen his profession under assault the last four years, like I have never seen, where Reporters Without Borders reports more than 70 journalists are murdered every year now, and hundreds are being held and others beaten and tortured and threatened. And yet, I go to class every day at Baylor and teach the beginning journalism with class where at least half of the kids say, I want to change the world, and I believe writing about it is the way to do that. Can you help me reach that goal? So I feel like we have this apostolic succession from Wilson Fielder and the then, of course, Doolin, who wasn't a journalism major, but that story needs to be told by journalists through the Twin Towers, through whatever is going on today. So it's yes, it's a compulsion, but it's a it's a calling as well, John. Thank you for asking. Yeah, and for those interested, we'll include a link to the Wilson Fielder article previously published in Baylor Line magazine. Uh, the to continue talking about the the Doolin story. Um, I I remember it was it was a fast turnaround on this, and I don't think either of us knew that would be the case I, when we first talked about this. We said, uh, you know, this this is a story of of momentous proportion. We need to do this right, do this carefully, um, go deep on the research. And the next thing that I knew. I was getting an, uh, a call from you. I was in Chicago, and I was getting a call from you one night, and you were saying, hey, I've been working on the Doolin piece, and I ran into Robert Cloud. And do you want to talk about that interaction? I, one of the first things I did was go through the Bader yearbooks 
and the Baylor Larian and tried to identify some of his contemporaries. And then with the help of Ella Pritchard, tracked down some of them, tracked down many more people than I could interview or even could include. And Robert Cloud's fame came up. Now, before I go further, I should admit that I'm uh, in full transparency here. I'm a major fan of Robert C. Cloud. I think he is one of Baylor's great uh, statesmen and has been a brave and vocal voice for uh, for shared governance and truth on the campus for many, many years. He's the only other person on campus besides uh, President Linda, who has been a president of a university. And for generations, he's taught budding college and university presidents and uh, EDD program. And I was thrilled to see Cloud's name and face in one of these yearbooks at the same time. So before I even had a chance to contact him, my wife Mary had a conference for her higher education innovation that brought in college presidents from all over the country at the Bader Club for her annual conference to help save struggling small colleges. And one of the speakers, right, naturally is the man's leading, the nation's leading expert on uh, law in higher education, who has written more and spoken more on this than anybody alive, Robert C. Clough. So as we were waiting for the conference to begin, sitting in one of the lobbies at the Texas Club, uh, the Bader Club, um, I said, Dr. Cloud, I, I see in the yearbook that you and Mike Doolin were contemporaries. Do you have any memories of him? And Cloud very carefully put down his coffee and looked at me with those great big blue eyes, which teared up, which made Mary and I tear up, and sat down and spoke just from the heart about Michael Doolin and what his legacy meant, and quoted to me verbatim the last page of his father's tribute to Michael and his beautiful Bell Mead accent, this passionate retelling of events of uh, half a century ago. And I knew at that moment, and I called you that night and said, I, I think we're on to something special. Yeah. The, uh, the passage that Cloud recited to you was, we wear our gold stars for you. We have left your boots in the corner. We have hung your sword on the wall. We are keeping fresh the good memories. And more often now, as we speak of you, it is with joy. The three of us who loved you and buried you, thank you forever. America has had no better than you and you were ours. Goodbye, Mike. Goodbye. Now, there's so much more in that. There's so much more in that piece that his father wrote. There's pieces about the, the moment when Al and Jean, uh, Mike's mother, found out about Mike's death. There are pieces about the doubt that they worked through and questioned and, and struggled to find uh, a sense of strength 
in this. This, uh, this piece, like McCam had said, was not the only piece that Al struggled to find uh, an understanding of Mike's death in. Uh, he also wrote a full novel on this. What did, what did seeing this, what did seeing this letter mean to you? What did that mean to, to have Robert Cloud quoting this, this letter to you? Well, in a strange way, I was grateful, certainly grateful from a writer's standpoint to have something this eloquent and powerful to include in my story. But I was grateful, oddly, for my profession as a writer, journalist, and and novelist, is that we have been given the gifts to articulate what is so often the inexpressible to be able to say for other people what they want and need and desperately desire to be able to say. And it's a sacred calling. And I don't ever, ever take it lightly. If you, you took my classes, you know, I use that term repeatedly. This is as sacred a calling as the ministry as medicine, because we alone are given the privilege to have access to the souls of so many other people. And by translating their, the hurt and joys of their heart, hopefully can ease the burdens for others, hopefully can give inspiration to others, hopefully can give guidance to others that would be otherwise inaccessible. And so the story is two stories. It's Mike's heroic sacrifice, and it's Al's equally heroic attempt and then success at conveying that story, that passion, that pain, to all the other gold star mothers and fathers out there, or for people who have lost a child, uh, the the greatest loss that I can imagine, child or grandchild, uh, in a way that can help make sense of a senseless world. no, No death makes sense. No death seems right. No death is is not worth marking and acknowledging and not celebrating, but giving tribute to. There is no life so demeaned that their passing doesn't diminish us all in some way, just as denying a single person the right to vote diminishes democracy at large. The loss of one of God's creatures created by God There's an incredible science fiction story. I've long since lost it in the author. And it takes place on the day of the resurrection. And billions and billions of souls have moved to heaven and are moving to heaven. And there's great wild celebration among the saints and and joy and, 
and bands are playing and comments streak across the sky. But Michael, the archangel, who has the greatest hearing of all the angels, hears what sounds like somebody crying and finds on the corner of heaven between the corner between the chaos that separates heaven and hell, which is as thin as a piece of paper and finds Jesus crying for those who didn't get to make the trip. I've heard variations on that after the World War II when Hitler dies and the world is in celebration of the greatest monster the world's ever known. Jesus still weeps in this story for the loss of a child and a soul that was created with so much promise 50 years before. I know that's controversial now, but the the center theme that we're all cherished remains the same. And that, that Al Doolin could convey that in such a gorgeous, passionate, painful way leaves me both in awe and admiration. Well, Bob, I hadn't thought about I hadn't thought about this article in that way at all. I had seen it as a very well-developed and well-written and eloquent narrative on the relationship between the loss of a son and uh, the the son's and the father's journey. Beyond that, the memory of the son and the, the legacy of the father meeting together in a year, in a year of more than 200,000 deaths in America alone, from a virus, deaths, each and every one of which are a deep loss to someone, a deep, deep loss to someone. I I haven't connected the dots on how important this piece is now. You and I started talking about this piece back in late January. I think you really kicked it off. Um, I I would have been in Chicago in early March, March 3rd, March 4th, right around there when you talked to me. Um, We had no idea when we started this, what you would be chronicling. And now that you've said that, I I think this is, I, I knew this was much bigger than Mike and Al Doolin. When I first read the piece, and and even back to when we first talked about this, but until you just said that, I had no idea. I'd never considered how how big and important this piece is. But to be fair, we could go to the plaques on every lamppost at Baylor and probably write, had we had the time and resources to do it, all of those lives. All the, as you mentioned, the 200,000 names that are on the pages of the New York Times, one after the other, not long ago. We could do that. But what separates this one, not because Mike is more valuable than all of those, God bless his sacrifice, but because Al articulates for so many a level of grief and complex loss. Um, uh, inarticulate pain of the heart that Al can touches on that uh, I I admire so greatly. 
in addition to talking to, to Robert Cloud, two of the other people you spoke with were um, Michael Borland and William Ferguson, both also contemporaries of Mike. Uh, Borland graduating in 66 with a JD in 69, uh, and Ferguson uh, doing the same thing, uh, a BA in 66 and a JD in 69, and Cloud graduating right along with them, except he was graduating with a Master's of Science in 66 and a doctorate in education in 69. So those other two men that you spoke to, um, I know how just mesmerizing Cloud is on a normal day. Um, those, those other two men, what were their reactions like when you brought up this name to them? Well, they, they actually knew him better than Cloud. Cloud had, was in the graduate program or Mike was an undergraduate at HBER. They played football with him. They stood beside him in classes and listened to him talk about his love of his country. And they were not surprised when so many of their friends had taken their legal deferments as being in education or families or whatever that Mike instead volunteered. Nor were they surprised when they heard that he had been promoted quickly and become a leader of men, and nor were they surprised, though they were stricken, when they found out, and remember in the pre-internet day, sometimes it took months to reach them, you know, because not all of them lived in Waco, that he had died a hero. And they said they still read that letter on occasions that call for Veterans Day. They still honor his memory in so many ways. And if you go in the uh, B Association, the wall there at the stadium that has honors Baylor grads um, who have played sports, the whole thing was created in part to honor Michael Duna. And they had a hand in that. And they were both emotional and they both told stories about how his life and legacy, as told by Al, but unlike most people they had known him before, remained very keen to them 60 years later. Uh, for those interested, the, the, the Mike Doolin's name is located on panel 58W, line 24, on the Vietnam Veterans Memorial and the Bee Association wall. The, the lamppost, you mentioned the lampposts on campus. Mike's lamppost, uh, you actually tracked down. You found it, right? Yeah, yeah. You, you, you walked to it. Um, it's uh, a plaque on a lamppost along Baylor Creek near the back of the Baylor bookstore. So that, let's, let's, let's play a little bit with that piece of it, of the actual walking. How, how is it when you come to a story like Mike Doolin? How is it when you come to a story like Wilson Fielder? Or how is it when you come to a story that's uh, much more fun, like uh, Abner McCall, the G-Man? Uh, regardless of what the article, the book on Andre Crouch or a, a, a resuscitation of uh, new history of black gospel music, what are those pieces that you're doing at the beginning, how are you getting into the researching of this, walking to the lamppost to see it, calling up these people, 
calling your network and saying, do you know anybody in this? What are some of those beginning pieces that you use uh, to do what you've been doing for your entire adult life? Tell fantastic stories. Oh, I, I lie to my students all the time. And one of the lies I tell them is that the writing of the story is, is the most fun. It, it's true, it is the most fun, but equally the most fun is the research and pulling together all of these things. The making order out of chaos is extraordinarily rewarding, even the dead ends. I don't ever get, oh, you know, angry or disappointed. I wasted time. The search, the hunt, the whole Sherlock Holmes thing, the, the hunt is on. I like watching those and reading good mysteries. Or trying to pull these pieces together is, is thrilling. It's invigorating. It's sad sometimes, but it's sad. And it's a, like uh, Romeo and Juliet. It's, it's sad and it's wonderful at the same time. As you, as you move forward, the, the big temptation is to not create a narrative too soon, but instead to pull together these individual parses. So I am such a Luddite, as, as you know better than most. It's not because I want to be. It's because my, my, the sides of my brain are one of them damaged, and I just can't, I can't read what Canvas wants me to understand in its words there. And so I collect obsessively information, way more than I can use. And John, you've been to my house. You know, I have uh, plastic tubs of hanging folders on every story on every book. And in the case of Andre Couch, several hanging folders now of Xerox printed out information. I know you young people keep stuff on your computer and all these wonderful files on your screen or wherever. But I like to work from something tangible. And so for the past year, for instance, year and a half, I have been gathering paper information on Andre Crouch. And if it's a book, I get it through the wonderful folks at Interlibrary Loan, and I Xerox it and put it under folders, both chronologically and thematically, so that when I start doing interviews, I actually have some basis to ask intelligent questions. I don't like fishing until the end of the interview, then I'll throw out some open-ended questions. But I, I'd like to know where it's going. So one of the early stops in the Mike and Al Doolin story, because I see it as a joint story, uh, was Frank Jasek's wonderful book, The Soldiers of the Wooden Cross, because Frank was the very first to go to all of these memorial plaques on the Baylor lamppost put together what information he could find on each person. And nearly as importantly, he meticulously went around and identified where those facts were. So people could go and find them. And there are people on Labor Day, uh, Memorial Day and Veterans Day who have ceremonies at each of these, although I don't know what's happened in the pandemic. And so using Frank's instructions I picked a day during the summer when there was nobody on the Baylor campus, put on two or three face masks and parked as close to the, where I thought it was, was possible. 
and then walked on a early Sunday morning um, from lamppost to lamppost, pausing by each one because some of these I had never read and my Baylor undergraduate and all the years I've been associated with Baylor, I still feel a little guilty when I pass by them like they weren't there and they don't signify something and somewhat extraordinary. Crossed the river, the creek, came on the other side and knew it had to be one of these next two. And it was a, um, it was a strange sort of anticipation because I, I haven't touched anything that Mike or Al Doolin has touched. I don't have any letters like I did with Wilson Field, or I don't have uh, Wilson's medals or the cards of grief and sympathy after he died. I had so much that I could feel and, and of his, but I hadn't been able to do that with Mike. It was Mike a huge now. box. Yeah. And so when I got to the plaque, and I understand Mike never would get to touch it, but I suspect Al and Gene and others who knew and loved him have. And like the Vietnam Memorial, when I went the first time with my father and he looked up friends he had lost, he was in Vietnam and was a pilot and that you have this strange compulsion to put your hands on it and to touch it. And that's what's so genius about the Vietnam Memorial, that it allows you that personal connection. I know it was very controversial when it was proposed, and there are still veterans groups that want some, you know, Soviet realism-style oversized monument but this was so intimate and so private. So as soon as I found it, the first thing I did was put my hands on it. And like a, a blind person feeling braille that I, I, um, I wanted that moment of connection with both Al and Mike. And, uh, when it was done, I took multiple photos because it was the light was good that day, and uh, went back and uh, was surprisingly buoyant, uh, upbeat. I was thinking it would be sobering, but no. But it, because I had that tangible connection, it was. Um, I'm not sure rewarding is the right word. It was. Um, It satisfied some need I had to make that connection about somebody who I'd been living with for the last several months, reading everything I could, calling people, tracking down odd facts. And then for a moment, then I could have that connection. And I, I hope Bader family gets that chance with other markers. Don't tell Next time you're on campus, stop by one of them and think that there has been someone deeply loved who is behind that plaque and who are people still remember and grieve over and who gave all for us. 
and granted, I'm a military brat, so I, I have I still cry at the missing man formation when the Jets go over ball games. But it's uh, I think the human animal likes some kind of physical, tangible connection sometimes. You um, you're on campus as a student. Uh, you you get here what about six years after Mike originally came to campus as a student? Yeah, I was here in 72. He left, what, 67, somewhere in there. So not, yeah, about that. A generation of students, at least. Somewhere in there. Um, you're, you're coming to campus as the Vietnam War is closing up. Mike is leaving for Vietnam as the war is ratcheting up. Uh, we've both talked, you and I, I have talked extensively about Vietnam on campus. I've written about what the protests uh, were like. When you were here, uh, you know, those six years after he first got here and and three or four years after he left for Vietnam, what was the mood on campus like around the war? And more specifically, what was it like in remembering those people like Mike who had given everything i only can speak for myself because i was keenly aware and had lost not personal friends at that point but my father's friends uh during that period i would lose friends from high school um it's such a cliche it sounds so trite now but i really tried to impress on my friends who were really discouraged about the war and the handling of the war, even the reasons we were in that particular war, uh, to separate the soldiers and the sailors and the airmen from the war and the politics, and the war and the government, but support the troops, support the kids who go. I, I was... 4F. I was 4F multiple times over. I couldn't see, couldn't hear, broken back. Um, um, so I never had to make that awful decision. That, and boy, by um, the 70s and mid-70s, that was a really tough decision. The war was so unpopular, and the draft had... Um, had leaned so heavily on people of color and people that were poor that um, the disproportionate number of the deaths were coming from those communities and the anger about the policies. Um, Baylor was a relatively quiet place during those days compared to other schools where the protests continued. And I, I, uh, as a budding reporter, to be honest, since I wasn't going to get drafted, and they wouldn't have taken me if I volunteered, I actually found myself much more consumed um, by the Watergate and it more shaped how I wanted to be. I never had dreams of being a correspondent, war correspondent, but I did have um, aspirations to someday to cover big stories like what was happening in Washington at the time. And I was a summer intern two of those summers 
at the State Department in Washington, D.C., and the Art Department. So, as I've, I'm sure you've heard, as a former student, John's heard virtually everything I've said, I'm sure. Uh, I would take my little tuna sandwich across from Foggy Bottom over to the, to hear the hearings, and they would go on through lunch. The, 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 there may be nobody in the, in the gallery except for reporters, but the continual process of creating an investigation of that side, which was wholly bipartisan, Democrats and Republicans working together to get the truth, was, was amazing to watch, that they could put aside their political differences and work for what was best for the country. I didn't know how it was going to end. I had my own personal political leanings, but I, I was so confident that what was going to happen was being the truth. I just wanted to be there and see it. And I could see from where I was sitting the rows of correspondents who were covering it and probably daydreamed on more than one occasion of being there. That more consumed me in 72 through 74 than Vietnam did, to be honest. On on campus, I mean, you know, as early as, as 67 and 68, there are small little protests of uh, a graduate student, a couple professors, and an undergraduate kind of protests. Uh, just just quiet little sign-holding, you know, peaceful uh, stop-the-war protests. Uh, do you remember any quiet or big little uh, ceremonies around the soldiers that had not come home on campus? Either around Memorial Day, which I know were usually wrapped up with the semester by then, um, or uh, in Veterans Day, which is one that we're usually uh, here and present for. You know, uh, it's kind of like watching home movies. Uh, you you don't know what you remember and you what was in the home movie that makes you think you remember, even though you were there. I worked on the Roundup yearbook all four years, and the editors, particularly uh, Shepowitz, the first one, uh, covered it extensively. And I have better memories of that coverage and what he was writing about. So I don't even know if I went to or saw those. But I do know that they happened, and I do know people I cared about were involved. But, gosh, granted, that was 50 years ago. Um, nearly, I, no, I don't remember. Yeah, there have, there have been a few things happened since then. Um, so, so Bob, I um, I don't think I've got any more questions. I, I I honestly think I got way more than I bargained for in this conversation. Um, I I cannot wait for people to see this article that you've written. Um, and uh, and I and I can't wait for people to see to see that truth that you spoke of earlier. How how transferable this is across deaths, especially in a year of so many deaths, and yet also how intimate this piece is about one death of a son and one father in it. Um, I'm, I'm so excited and so grateful for this piece. 
And, uh, and with that, unless you've got anything else uh, about Mike or Al Doolin or the process of reporting this, um, this is good. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity to immerse myself in their lives and enrich my own life, whatever you know, history will judge whether the story even touched on it is that well, but the, it gave me the opportunity to live for a time with a couple of extraordinary people. Thank you for that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Can't wait to see what's your next piece. <laughs> I know it's going to be good. So, all right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Bob. My pleasure. So that's my conversation with Bob Darden. Thanks so much for listening all the way to the end. If you're interested in the resources or the story about Al Doolin and his son that we mentioned or how to follow Bob, you can find lots of links in the show notes below. Join me next week for a conversation with Dr. Mia Moody Ramirez about communicating in a crisis. And as always is the case when Mia and I are together, there's a lot of nerdy academic rabbit trails. I think you'll really like it. You can click the follow button to make sure you get each episode in your feed wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, if you haven't reviewed our show yet, could you do that right now? You're our very best source for new listeners, and we'd love to hear your thoughts. You can post a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. We're eager to hear from you, and we do really read every single review. If it's good, if it's bad, if it's indifferent, your reviews help us make the podcast better and remain your voice in the Baylor family. Our show is produced by the Baylor Line Foundation. Our audio producer is Michael Echterling, with production support by Courtney Faulkner. Research is by Rachel Cooper. Our director of marketing is Kaylee Davis, with additional support from Sophia Alejandro. Special thanks to Tony Peterson, Bob Darden, and Alan Holt. I'm Jonathan Platt.